Hello and welcome to the UCC School of Law podcast where we showcase the intellectually ambitious research being undertaken by our faculty and discuss topics relevant to each of our internationally recognised research centres. I'm Anya Royal, co-director of the Centre for Law and the Environment here at UCC and on this episode I'll be speaking with Dr Fred Logue, Principal of FP Logue Solicitors based in Dublin, who's a specialist in environment, technology and information law. Fred has represented Friends of the Irish Environment and Right to Know, two NGOs amongst other clients, and has worked in a number of very high-profile environmental cases. Today, Fred spoke at a Centre for Law and the Environment seminar where we explored recent developments in European Union environmental law. So welcome to this School of Law podcast. Fred Logue, thank you for joining us um, this afternoon. And I think we might begin by asking a little about your background. Uh, can you tell us, Fred, what brought you to the, the field of law to begin with? Um, well, to begin with, I studied science in college uh, and I have a PhD in physics. And I worked as an engineer for around 10 years. And I was in the US working uh, during the dot-com boom. And I lost my job. And then when I came back, I was at a bit of a loose end, didn't know what to do. So my wife actually suggested I study law. Uh, Luckily enough, in Ireland, to be a solicitor, you don't need to have a law degree. So I studied at night uh, to do the entrance exams, and I was particularly taken with constitutional law, and I came first in Ireland in constitutional law, and I just kind of fell in love with it. And then I still still kept working, and uh, the time to become a trainee was running out. You have five years. So I took the plunge and rang up a big law firm, A&L Goodbody, to whom I'll be eternally grateful for giving me a break. And two weeks later, I started as a trainee solicitor. I worked on some incredible cases with one of the top five firms in Ireland in IP competition. So I left there when I qualified and I moved to Brussels with my wife's job and knocked around there for a while. And then I came back to Ireland about five years ago. I was kind of, again, looking around, what will I do, what will I do? And I decided to set up uh, my own firm, which is about four and a half years ago. And the rest is history, as they uh, say? Well, it's getting there, it's getting there. Yes. So I, I, when I was off, when I was kind of knocking around, I met a guy called Gavin Sheridan, mm-hmm. who's an FOI campaigner. And I started helping him do freedom of information requests and freedom of information appeals and kind of learned the ropes about how to, to do legal stuff through that. And then there was one very high-profile case, which was an EIE case, an Access to Environmental Information case, about NAMA, which was Ireland's bad bank, which had just been set up. And at the time, you couldn't FOI it, but because of the European law aspect, it was subject to AIE, or so we thought. So we went through a very convoluted process where we succeeded in convincing the Commissioner for Environmental Information that NAMA was a public authority and that it had to handle requests for access to environmental information. Uh, and then NAMA appealed that to the High Court. Uh, I helped Gavin with that, and uh, the High Court found in our favour, and then it was appealed again to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court found in our favour. And I wasn't even a lawyer at this stage, so that was my first experience. And so my first ever mm. foray was an access to environmental information case, and a very high-profile, important one that is 
sets the standard for how AIE regulations are interpreted in Ireland to this day? Yes, and one of the themes of the, the seminar at UCC today has been around access to environmental information and in particular you explained to our, our very engaged audience uh, what access to mm -hmm. environmental information actually involves and the public's right to access yeah. information. Could you maybe tell us a little more about that, um, perhaps for somebody who might be very familiar with the concept of access to environmental information, or yep. AIE as it's known for yep. shorthand? So I think a lot of people are familiar with FOI, which is Freedom of Information, but there are particular EU rules which come from the IRS Convention, which deal with accessing environmental information, which is a particular type mm. of information. Uh, and it has two aspects to it. The first is that the public has a right to request access to environmental information that's held by public bodies. And the second is that public bodies or public authorities have a, an obligation to actively disseminate environmental information. And the idea is that this will lead to greater public participation in environmental decision making exchange of views, greater awareness, and ultimately to a better environment. So it's a very practical objective, which is to improve the environment through the increased accessibility of environmental information. And do you think, Fred, that um, the public, generally speaking, are aware of their rights, their right to demand environmental information from public authorities? And I don't think, well, I don't think so, not specifically anyway. Mm. I, think the, I think they are aware that they should be able to get the information. But in terms of knowing what the actual rights are and the scope of them and how they can use the, the system, I don't think so. Okay. Uh, because there's a lot of confusion between FOI and AIE, we don't have an integrated system in Ireland. And certainly FOI would have a very high profile yeah. um, compared to access to environmental information. Yeah. But I'm aware that you've done a lot of work with Gavin Sheridan mm -hmm. and others, as it turns out, um, with a particular NGO called mm -hmm. Right to Know. Maybe you could tell our listeners something more about Right to Know, how it came about, yeah. and some of the highlights of the work that you've done with them. Yeah, so uh, Right to Know was set up by Gavin Sheridan and another journalist called Ken Fox. And it kind of grew out of our experience working with NAMA and the use of litigation to increase access to information. And in particular with AIE, because there are special rules that, that protect you from adverse costs if you lose, it's easier to litigate access to information matters. And also because it's European law, the state is constrained in how it can legislate in that area. So we decided to set, well, Gavin and Ken with my assistant decided to set up a company to do this. Uh, and to do some fundraising and uh, the first case that we took was to access uh, information about cabinet discussions of climate change yes. or greenhouse gas mm -hmm. emissions because up to that point uh, it was thought that the uh, what was discussed in the Irish government was sacrosanct that could never be accessed but obviously uh, or not obviously maybe to the listeners but EU law takes precedence over Irish law and that includes precedence over the Constitution and precedence over the Irish Supreme Court. So, in, in essence, we can't pass laws that avoid EU law. And somebody had tried before to access cabinet discussions of greenhouse gas emissions and had failed in the High Court. And there was a Supreme Court appeal, which the Commissioner subsequently withdrew without any explanation. So we decided to have another go at it. And uh, ultimately, last year, 2018, we got a successful decision from the High Court which said that there's a fundamental right of access to environmental information that even for constitutionally protected information, the public authority must weigh up the public interest and decide whether or not the information should be 
uh, released and we got some information from the mm -hmm. cabinet. So I think that that's a, a landmark. It's the first time ever that cabinet discussions have been released officially. Yes, and it shows, I suppose, the power of European Union environmental law and how, as you say, in certain circumstances, it can override Irish constitutional law, including um, cabinet confidentiality. Yeah. And again, how with, with the assistance of lawyers such as yourselves, that NGOs like Right to Know can make a really significant impact yeah. in terms of information rights. Mm -hmm. And uh, you've also been involved, I understand, with um, a communication to the Aarhus Convention Compliance Committee, which is a, an international body that yeah. sits in Geneva. And again, um, that concerned the right of access to environmental information. Could you tell our listeners a little um, about that? Yeah, so that probably was actually the first case. If, if you make a request and you're unhappy with how it's handled, mm -hmm. obviously most people don't go to court. There is an administrative review called the Commissioner for Environmental Information. It's supposed to be a cheap and easy-to-use procedure for reviewing public authorities' decisions that anyone can use without having to hire a lawyer or to go to any expense or to know too much about mm -hmm. the law. The problem was or, and is that decisions are taking years to make on very basic points. Uh, so we decided to, in our view, this is incompatible with the right of access that's set down by international law by the Aarhus Convention. So we made a communication to a body called the Aarhus Convention Compliance Committee, which unusually for international treaty takes complaints from members of the public mm. about a country's implementation of the treaty. So we gathered up some statistics to show that decisions on average were taking a year and a half or 18 months, often on very basic points like points of law or things like that. And that has gone through a hearing in, in Geneva, which took place last November. And I think next week we may see some developments in terms of getting uh, a draft conclusion, hopefully, because the next session is next week. But I'd be very surprised if the state... Uh, is that there is not some kind of finding that the, the length of time that's taken to review administratively these decisions mm -hmm. is, is being done correctly. Like it's, it's, the information rights are meant to integrate with other environmental rights, so you should be able to get information before you take a court case, before the planning permission is granted. So any procedure that takes years rather than weeks or months is fundamentally incompatible with your, your, your other rights under the Aarhus Convention. No, that, that sounds very interesting. We'll, yeah. we'll look out for that. Yeah. So uh, I, I also understand that you, were, you represented Friends of the Irish Environment in a very significant environmental case involving a challenge to the planning consent for Dublin Airport, yeah. or the extension, I should say, to, to Dublin Airport, yeah. and that that particular um, legal, set of legal proceedings led to the recognition of effectively a new constitutional right. Yeah. And maybe you could tell our listeners more about how that came about. <clears throat> and its significance. Yeah. Well, like when you study law in Ireland, you do, you, in constitutional law, there's these cases from the 60s and 70s about fundamental rights. So the Ryan case, the, the, the McGee case, and various others, where the Irish Supreme Court of the day uh, read into the Constitution fundamental human rights that had, were being recognised in other countries, most notably the United States. Uh, and because our Constitution does recognise fundamental rights and recognises some specific rights. It also has a kind of um, wording that says, in particular, these are the rights you have. And the court interpreted that to say, well, the Constitution calls out these rights, but there are other rights that are unenumerated. So it's called the Doctrine of Unenumerated Rights. Uh, and down through the years, various rights, the right to bodily integrity, the right to privacy, in communications, the right to marital privacy, and so on. There's probably, I don't know, tw at least 20. 
have been recognised by the courts rather than through legislation. So it's always been a bit of a, a, a question, is there a right to a healthy environment? Because in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, the feeling was that there wouldn't be any more unenumerated rights because people had tried to push it too far into socio-economic rights, right to education, right to housing and stuff like that. But at the same time, it seems kind of obvious that we, have, we should have a right to an environment because it sustains us. And without a right to environment, there isn't much point to anything else. So I, I gave a presentation at the April UCC conference where I kind of talked about the genesis of the unenumerated rights. Pointed out that the first ever one, the Ryan case, was actually an environmental case that, about somebody complaining about fluoridization of water and that they won on the law and lost on the facts and that the, the law said that if the person was harmed by the fluoridization, then she would have a, a legal basis to complain about it because her right to bodily integrity had been infringed. But they found that the science didn't support her claim. So she had a right, but it wasn't being infringed. So I looked at the case law and how it was constructed and basically drew parallels between the kind of social democracy movement of the 1960s with the environmental movement of the 21st century. And particularly like Pope Francis's Laudato Si, their constitutional rights in other jurisdictions. And basically said, well, it's, it's obvious, you know, we must have this right. And then uh, Friends of the Irish Environment rang me up and said, well, let's do it. Here's the case. And myself and Barrister John Kenny said, yeah, let's do it. So we went in uh, to challenge a decision that extended the time for Dublin Airport to build a new runway. So probably one of the biggest capital projects in the state and certainly one of the most significant in terms of climate change because of the expansion of the airport for aviation. Uh, and we were up against the state, Dublin Airport Authority, bizarrely Ryanair. There was like 20 barristers, 10 solicitors and us <laughs> squeezed in. And we were in, in the case as well with residents who were, had a different complaint that the, the noise was going to affect their, their homes. So we made the argument and we went back in, uh, not hoping to get anything because it's, it's, it was fairly extreme what we're looking for. But, and we thought we'd actually win the case based on the environmental, basic environmental points. Mm -hmm. But we actually lost the case uh, on the basis that we actually didn't have a right to take it in the first place, just due to particular legal reason. But we, we, we won, if you like, in terms of identifying the environmental right. And the court found that climate change is happening, uh, climate change is bad, that the airport extension would increase greenhouse gas emissions, our right was activated, but in this case it wasn't infringed. Uh, now, there's a bit of debate on whether that is binding, because it was because technically we, we couldn't have brought the case. So it remains to be seen now if it'll be applied further down the line. And that particular ruling from the High Court, recognising that unwritten yeah. or unenumerated constitutional right to a certain quality of environment, attracted worldwide publicity at the time, as it turns out, and there's still a lot of interest in the basis on which the High Court recognised the right. Yeah. But as you say, we, we wait and see now how the right will develop into the future. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, it shows, I suppose, how the genesis of an idea took shape at one of the UCC Law and the Environment Conferences. Yeah, no, it did. And, yeah. and led to something quite extraordinary. Yeah. And I suppose I should also say... Uh, for the benefit of our listeners that Fred Logue has been very generous with his time over the years and regularly comes and speaks to our undergraduate mm -hmm. and postgraduate environmental students 
uh, and again talks to them very much about the, the practical side of, of environmental law and how the law can be used in some very innovative ways to bring about real change, drawing in particular on his experience with environmental information law uh, and also of course then with his science background of bringing in the, the climate change side of things and, and other elements as well. But with, with a view to, to pulling things together, um, you spoke today, uh, Fred, at our seminar on recent developments in EU environmental law. Could you perhaps give our listeners a flavour of the key points that you would have made today at the yeah. seminar? Well, I think what I was trying to communicate to the audience is, you know, this is what you have. Uh, so you have a right of access to environmental information. You can exercise that right, and you should be able to exercise it informally. So you should be able to ring up your local authority and say, can you tell me about this planning permission? Can you tell me about this pollution? And they have a duty, a legal obligation to answer you. You should be able to email them. You know, unfortunately, it has become a kind of formalised in that they won't respond within their legal parameters unless you identify it. But in theory, it's meant to be a very practical law and that the public authorities have a responsibility to identify in the first instance whether or not they have a legal obligation to give out certain information. Obviously, it's not an unlimited right, so there's only six categories of information you can get. But once you identify information within one of those six categories, in principle, quite a lot of information is available on them. Not just your normal public authorities. So obviously it includes government, local government, but it also includes kind of quangos, quasi-governmental organisations that have been given special powers. So, for example, a private company that runs a motorway has power to collect tolls. So that makes them a public authority because the state has said, you are going to do state functions, and to do that, we will give you these powers to do that. Often, for example, it would be compulsory purchase of land mm. or uh, exemptions from planning permission, for, say, for electricity infrastructure. So that's the second category. And then there's a third category, again, which are bodies which are providing services relating to the environment or public functions relating to the environment, that are controlled by the state. So they may not even have special powers. They may be totally private or kind of quasi-private bodies. So the Aarhus Convention is set up to be kind of privatisation neutral. Mm -hmm. It recognises that in some countries, for example Ireland, we have a very kind of neoliberal view and a lot of stuff is privatised. The state doesn't directly own or operate a lot of functions. So uh, it's meant to kind of level that playing field across, I don't know, 40-odd parties to the Aarhus Convention and 28-odd member states in the European Union. And then there are certain exceptions that protect certain interests, so commercially confidential information, privacy rights, uh, there's even an exception that protects the environment. And then there's a very broad access to information on emissions into the environment. This is a special feature of AIE that you don't get in FOI. So the, the basic principle is that the public should know about emissions into the environment because that is particularly harmful. It's already taking place anyway, so it's not secret, uh, or it should not be secret. And um, the, the European courts have uh, interpreted those obligations very broadly and very purposefully. And then the final aspect to it is that you have a right to administrative remedies and judicial remedies that are not prohibitively expensive. So you don't have to risk bankruptcy to take a judicial challenge to a case. No, that, that's very interesting and, and certainly I mean, the public has some very powerful rights there granted under international and European Union mm -hmm. law and I think the important thing about the seminar today was that it showed us how interested people are in knowing what their rights are, knowing yeah. what public authorities' obligations are 
and of course, as you just said there, that they have a remedy then if they feel that their rights mm -hmm. um, have been breached yeah. or that they haven't got environmental information or access to that information when mm -hmm. in fact they should have. Yeah. And, um, and even if you've exhausted your domestic remedies, you even have a right to make a communication to the UN and Geneva for uh, systemic failures of a member state or of Ireland to implement the convention. And that provides, I suppose, another higher level of oversight, um, yeah. and again, which, which is, is, is particularly interesting. So uh, to go back, perhaps, uh, Fred Logue, to where we started, um, you talked at the beginning about your background on what led you to a, a career in the law. Could you maybe tell us a little about how your science background, your PhD in physics, how that might have influenced your work to date? Has the combination of science and law proved useful? Or have you been able to use your scientific um, background to good effect? Well, I think indirectly. Like, obviously, you can read a graph and do an Excel spreadsheet. But I think what it, it, it helps with kind of strategizing. And, you know, law is, is a lot about strategy. And it helps you... It, that kind of big picture view, it, it helps you figure out how to take a case and to evaluate stuff. I, I, like, I can't really say directly that I'm looking at numbers or that even be any good at it anymore. It's, it's been a long time. But it does help you focus on issues and narrow things down and work out how best to present a case and how to run a case. Mm -hmm. So that kind of logic, deduction... And also because you don't think like everyone else, you don't have that hive mind that lawyers might have. You come at it like an outsider, uh, so you don't know the, the unwritten rules, you know, so you can do whatever you want. <laughs> the great thing about law is there aren't rules, there are very few rules. So you, There are so, very few rules in law, yes. Well, unless the rule is written down, it doesn't exist. No, that's a good so point. unless it says you can't do it, then you can't do it. So there's... So, it, I think it's an area where actually there's a lot of scope for creativity and doing things in different or new ways. And as long as they're not explicitly prohibited or grossly unfair or dishonest, you can do it. So why can't you set up a company to take a case so that you don't have to risk your livelihood? Why, why not? If the law says you, a company can take a case, then let's do it. You know, things like that. And there's nothing to say you can't take 20 cases. You don't have to take one or two. If the law says we have a right of access to the courts, then you have a right of access. There's no, and there's no limit on it. And, uh, and, and things like that. So you can be very, very creative. Uh, and if you approach it in a way that you know, judges respect and your, the opposite numbers respect, they, they see you're genuine about it and you're motivated, you're not trying to pull a fast one, you will get that back. So I think like that's... I'm not sure if that answers the question, but... I think the biggest thing that helped me as a lawyer, being a non-lawyer from my training, was being an outsider and not knowing all the, the unwritten rules. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. I'm sure our listeners will, will think so as well. Certainly that, that innovative or sort of different line of thinking um, has led to great results in terms of certainly the work you've done with Friends of the Irish Environment, the new yeah. constitutional right, and also the work with Right to Know yeah. in terms of exploiting insofar as it's possible freedom of information rights, access to environmental information rights, and I'm sure there's a lot more to come into the future. Well, so you. it's been a great pleasure speaking <laughs> with you, Fred Logue, and I'm afraid that's all very we have good. time for on this episode. And thank you very much for speaking with me today. And remember, if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can subscribe to future episodes via your podcast provider. I'm Anya Ryle, and thank you for listening. <laughs>